0: This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is Burning Questions, Not People. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. Distefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound,
1: we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's
0: your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix.
1: Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker, and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Oh, friends, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. Good to see you if you're watching on YouTube, and good to hear from you if you're listening to my beautiful voice through the microphone. Okay, on this episode of the podcast, that was silly, but whatever. I interviewed Daniel G. Hummel. He wrote this book. I'm holding it up to the camera The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation. This is a nerdy episode. I make no apologies for it. It's an important episode. If you want to know where some of the Christian nationalist rhetoric is coming from, if you want to know how rapture theology got popularized, even though it's a very new way of thinking about the Bible and the end of the world, this is a really Powerful podcast. Dan has done his homework. The guy is a human encyclopedia. We break down what is dispensationalism? How does that tie into the modern state of Israel? Yes, there's a connection. And also, rapture theology. Why is it so popular? So, this was fantastic. I can't thank uh, Dan enough for coming on and just unloading all of his wisdom and knowledge to me and you, the audience. That being said, friends, Thank you for being here. If you want to support the work that we do, you can share this podcast, share this YouTube video. Uh, You can like and subscribe to any of our channels and you can also donate. We are a nonprofit organization. That's how we function. That's how we're able to make this content completely paywall free. We don't have Patreon accounts. We don't do anything with subscriptions. Everything we offer is completely paywall free to the community as they're renegotiating their faith. And we do that because people like you give generously. Let me just be clear. I know that phrase can be triggering for some people because of our church background. You are not giving to God. You are not giving to the kingdom. You're not even giving to me. You're donating to an organization as a nonprofit whose work you like and support and want to see continuing. We are f- completely financially transparent. You can look on our website, newevangelicals.com, and see where all the money goes. And any donation made in the U.S. is tax deductible. All right, friends, I'm going to stop talking about that. I'm going to get into this interview I will talk to you all next time. Enjoy. Before we get to the interview, I need to remind you that we are headed to Theology Beer Camp October 18th in Springfield, Missouri. And friends, let me tell you, this event is stacked. We have amazing theologians like Pete Enns, Adam Clark, Sarah Lane Ritchie, Grace Juneson Kim, and Thomas J. Ord, many of which have been on the podcast, by the way. We have amazing podcasts showing up, like You Have Permission with Dan Koch, The God Who Riots with Damon Garcia, A Tiny Revolution with Kevin Garcia, and of course, Yours Truly. And this year, the music lineup is out. Of control. See Derek Webb, Flamey Grant, Trey Pearson, and more perform live. Over two dozen TNE folks have already bought their tickets, and now is the time to get yours. Use promo code TNE GodPod for $25 off your ticket and come ready to explore better ways forward in your faith. Meet amazing people, and if you like beer, well, your ticket includes an unlimited amount from several local breweries. This is gonna be an amazing time. So get your ticket via the link in the show notes and use promo code TNEGodPod for $25 off your ticket. I will see you in October. Well, everyone, I have Dan Hummel on the podcast. It is great to be with you, Dan. Thanks so much for making time. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, uh, happy to be with you. Uh, Looking forward to the conversation.
1: Yeah, likewise. So you wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation. I'm actually looking forward to this conversation because it's not... Super often, I get to talk to someone who writes a book on something like this. And I'm just going to be honest with you, for a lot of people, and this really even goes for me, the term dispensationalism is like a big fancy word. I'm not super clear on what it means. So I'm looking forward into kind of digging into that and kind of getting your thoughts on why you wrote this book. Before we do that, I like to ask my guests the same starting question. Give us your background. Like, did you grow up in evangelical spaces? And then what led you to write this book?
0: Yes. I grew up in evangelical spaces, and I I still inhabit them, you could say. Um, I grew up a missionary kid. I was uh, in Germany for some of my childhood with a conservative evangelical uh, mission agency ended up landing in Colorado Springs, Colorado, very, uh, central place for a lot of, uh, evangelicalism. Uh, and the Mecca. that's, <laughs> yeah, I, Mecca is a hard one cause it's from a different religion, but yes, there's a, there's a sense of, of that. And I actually, uh, one of my very small claims to fame is I went to the same mega church growing up as Jerry B Jenkins, one of the left behind, uh, novelists, uh, uh, writers, um, in Colorado Jeez Springs. <laughs> um, so I grew up in that world. I, I, um, uh, I went to public school, which was made my life different than a lot of other kids who were in that same world, who went to Christian schools or something. Uh, ended up going to Colorado State University, majoring in history and philosophy, and then ended landed at UW-Madison, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and got my PhD in American Religious History a few years ago. And um, uh, ended up doing what a lot of uh, historians do, which is navel gaze. You just sort of study your own past and try to understand where... <laughs> why everything was what it was when you were growing up. And so I ended up doing a dissertation on Christian Zionism, which is a a related Mm. topic, but evangelicals who are very, uh, supportive of the state of Israel for theological reasons. Um, and I, I had planned to go into sort of academia, be a professor and teach history. Um, but, uh, uh, The the academic job market is hard, and I was on that market for a number of years. Ended up landing where I'm I'm sitting in one of the rooms now for Upper House, which is a Christian study center at Mm UW-Madison. So we are like uh, some other campus ministries um, that uh, sort of minister to the university. We tend to have a more um, uh, or I would say less uh, uh, adversarial approach to the university than than some other evangelical ministries, Uh, and uh, we really see ourselves as as being a faithful presence of Christian thinking in a large public university and wanting the university to be its best self and thinking that having Christians in the mix who are engaged in the disciplines, engaged in the scholarship and writing part of the university world is a good thing. So that's where I landed now. So um, I had intended to not be in the ministry uh, growing up in that, but I ended up uh, through you know, well, providence or, or just fate uh, back in a ministry role. And um, I, I'm privileged in this role to be able to also have time to write. And so I continue to write on topics like dispensationalism and Christian Zionism uh, when I when I have the chance.
1: That's awesome. You know, I actually, there's a book, I forgot the person's name, he passed away, called A Brief History of Christian Zionism um, that right. I read, um, I own. And, and man, it really just blew my mind on like so much of the history that I just never knew about. So, and you're right cuz in, even in that book he ties a lot of like John Nelson Darby and dispensationalism into kind of some of those moves. So, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. So, let me ask you this, why why this book? I mean, th- this listen, I'm holding the book. It's hardback, it's like 300 and something pages. Uh it's like not massive font. So, it's obviously a pretty dense book and I can only imagine writing a simple book for just, you know, people, for normal people, let alone a book on dispensationalism that is this thick. So what gave you the drive, the passion, the energy to write a book on dispensationalism?
0: Right. Um, Well, I I am someone who is sort of a nerd on theology stuff. So there's just a sort of built-in interest in, in understanding Uh, uh, reading dense texts and other things. As I mentioned, I grew up in in the dispensationalist world. I am not a dispensationalist uh, anymore. And I was always curious on why that was, or or sort of why I grew up in that particular tradition and uh, how it shaped me. So um, uh, there was sort of a a, a personal interest in understanding uh, just where I came from. There's also a, a sort of scholarly interest, which is that a lot of scholars have written on terms like fundamentalism and evangelicalism. Uh, and, and, of course, you've interviewed a number of people who are studying those traditions now through lenses of race and masculinity and, uh, and other things. Um, yeah. I was interested in centering one of the traditions that within the movement is very much talked about, which is dispensationalism. And so th- there just been, there had not been a survey done of dispensationalism, sort of history, looking at where it started to where it ended up. Uh, for about uh, at least a few decades, which was surprising to me, even though it's been invoked a lot, a lot of books mention the word dispensationalism but don't really center it. So there was an uh, academic interest in in saying what what could I learn about telling the story of uh, e- evangelicalism through the lens of dispensationalism, um, and then the third is I was uh, like many evangelicals uh, wondering uh, in the last or five. 10 years, mm. why things have changed so much in the evangelical <laughs> yeah. world. And um, I thought part of the yeah. answer might be, the the second part of my title is the rise and fall of dispensationalism. And so the fall part was where I was really interested in in the consumerization and uh, politicization of dispensationalism, in particularly in the last few decades. And I thought part of the answer, I mean, th- there's a lot written about that, but I thought I could contribute something new to the conversation by thinking theologically about the ways how a group of Christians that maybe 50 or 60 years ago defined themselves very strongly on this theological ism. And today, many of those same people um, aren't really theological in how they're identifying as evangelical and they're much more cultural and political. And I thought that um, I had something new to say there too. So there were a number number of different uh, ways I was motivated to Get up and write every day on the topic.
1: I really love that, and I appreciate that because um, I I just finished um, Isaac Sharp's book, The Other Evangelicals. His episode's already out, and you know, as I'm reading books like his and, and other books about just the evangelical movement that I've also been a part of, I am realizing that it's never really been a static thing. It's always kind of evolving and morphing and changing. And I mean, this is a this is a real broad generalization, but it seems like it kind of started out being centered on, on a certain theological paradigm and then when like folks like William Pennell and other black folks tried to join under the same theological umbrella but differed on the race issue then they were they were kind of pushed out and then it became more political and now i tend to agree that the term evangelical really has more of a political leaning than theological one. Um, And one one of the examples I use often is I say James White, who's from like the hardline reformed world, and Kenneth Copeland would see each other as heretics, especially James White seeing Kenneth Copeland as a heretic. But they agree and talk the same talking points politically and are totally unified. And I don't really see James White calling people like that out these days, you know? Right, and so right. I think that's kind of like, it's not official, you know, data. It's more antidotal, but it just, it kind of has shown me, hmm, I think that there is a shift happening here. So with that being said, let's just start here. What the hell is dispensationalism? Let's just start with the very basics. Okay. I have like a, a, a blurry picture in my head, but I want to hear it from an expert. Give us the crash course on what we're actually talking about with the term dispensationalism.
0: Yeah. And, and the, the full term, if you were going to sort of take a theology class would be a uh, premillennial dispensationalism. So it's a seven syllable just uh, right.
1: more, more fancy uh, words to add,
0: <laughs> right? Just a, a piece of cloth in your mouth every time you're talking. Um, so, uh, so dispensationalism is uh, it, it just sort of, if you looked up the term in the dictionary or something, it's a system of theology. So this is a part of the world that most people it's don't, don't inhabit where they're thinking about systems of theology. But if you're in a seminary or if you're a pastor, you often come across this stuff. There are different ways of systematizing all of the teachings in the Bible. And dispensationalism is one of them. It's been largely popular in white evangelical uh, traditions and fundamentalist traditions. Its provenance is about 150 years old, at least when we can talk about a system of theology. Some of the teachings date back much earlier than that. But in terms of coordinating them all together— um, into a system where they're all supporting each other. It's about 150 years old. We're talking 1860s, 1870s is really when you can date it. And wow. um, most of your listeners, if they're not, if they're in the evangelical world, they probably have heard the term. Uh, somehow referenced in more theological conversations, maybe, maybe not defined or anything. Um, if you're e- either in the evangelical world or out of it, you'll know it uh, because it's had this amazing popular life or, or sort of afterlife, you could say, in the depictions of the rapture, which is this uh, teaching that's very distinctly dispensationalist, but a lot of outsiders think it's like all Christians believe this or something, which is the idea that at some moment in the future, uh, we don't know when, suddenly all true believing Christians will suddenly disappear and go up into heaven and that'll kick off a, an end time scenario where there's a bunch of horrible events. Everyone's going to have to take the mark of the beast or be persecuted, all that kind of stuff. Um, That is a dispensationalist eschatology or or theory of the last things, of how, how the world's going to end. And um, that's been really popularized and it, it's been popularized through the Left Behind novels, which are basically novelizing that uh, that theology. It's been popularized in in ways that are way outside of the dispensationalist world. I really like uh, an HBO series from a few years ago called The Leftovers, uh, which mm. uh, which is not written by any dispensationalist or anything, but its its core plot device is that it just suddenly. of all the world's population disappears. And then the show is about sort of the psychological drama and and emotional toll that takes on the people left behind, the leftovers. Um, But if you go back and you read about the, the authors and the writers behind that, they were drawing that from the rapture idea that became so popular. In um, in in American religious culture, decades decades before, so a lot of people uh, will recognize the rapture, and, uh, and and that is part of the dispensationalist system. Um, but the dispensational system includes all types of things. It, it, it's a certain way of reading the whole Bible, of reading the way God deals with humanity throughout the Bible. That's actually where the term comes from. Is there's these different dispensations or periods of time that uh, follow each other, where God is dealing with the ancient Israelites or the church uh, with sort of different terms of of the relationship. Um, And then finally, the last thing I'll say is um, dispensationalists tend to be known for being very literalistic in the reading of the Bible. And so what they mean by that often is that instead of reading the the text of the Bible in a way that would let you allegorize or, or spiritualize what's being particularly in prophecy, what's being talked about. Dispensationalists tend to be literalists or see prophecy as being fulfilled in a way that like we could take a video camera and record the fulfillment of the prophecy. And yeah. that has made them distinct in the... Uh, in the, in the Christian world for having that interpretation of prophecy. And then they've, they've been some of the largest defenders of things like biblical inerrancy because they associate literalism with, uh, with inerrancy. So they're, they're all over the place. I, I do call it the rise and fall. So I think there's been a popularization, but within the Christian world, a, a sharp decline in the influence of dispensationalists. But if you rewind a couple generations, it was one of the dominant ways that evangelicals and fundamentalists thought about the world and engaged with the Bible.
1: Okay, I, I wanna break this down a little bit more just so we're all really clear. Cause I know for the audience, and even for myself, I, I'm tracking with you, but I wanna make sure that I'm understanding correctly. So, my first question is you mentioned that like the full term is premillennial dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. I've heard terms like premillennial, postmillennial, omnimillennial, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I, what, is, is the rapture part where the premillennial part comes in? Like it's the belief in the rapture. Is that what makes it premillennial? And if that's correct, is there such a thing as like, I guess a post millennial, whatever that would even entail, dispensationalist?
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, there are no post millennial dispensationalists. There are only premillennial dispensationalists. And premillennial means uh, it, it pre and post refer to when you think Jesus will come back, if, if you believe that. And a premillennial thinks he'll come back before the millennium, before establishing this kingdom of peace and prosperity. Post millennial is the idea that it is uh, Jesus will return at the end of that thousand year. Um, millennium. And uh, an amillennial has sort of spiritualized that adi- the entire idea. It's not a literal thousand years that it is going to happen. So mm-hmm. for many, okay. for many evangelicals, particularly up until recent decades, premillennialism, and you can even say today, premillennialism is the dominant view. And so a premillennialist tends to look at the world as going further and further into chaos, declining and needing Jesus to come back and sort of save everything. Um, and a postmillennialist, which there are some Christian nationalists who are very post-millennialist, they think it is the church's role to establish the millennium. It is, it is the role of Christians to sort of build a kingdom on earth that Jesus will then uh, return to.
1: Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. I'm interrupting to let you know that we have brought back our many hands make light work giving campaign through September. Any new monthly donation of five dollars or more a month or a one time donation of thirty dollars or more will get you entered to win some really cool prizes like Mad Priest coffee, free merch, co-host a podcast episode with me, or you can win the first ever TNE mystery box curated by yours truly. If any of our work, including this podcast, has been helpful for you as you you find better paths forward in your faith, would you consider donating to help others along their journey? Your generosity keeps our content completely paywall-free and accessible to all. Click on the link in the show notes and set up your donation and join in on the work as we help carve better paths forward in our faith. Already a monthly donor but want to enter? Increase your donation by $1 or more and you're in. God doesn't choose favorites and neither does TNE. Winners are not divinely inspired. It will be drawn at random from all eligible entries after the campaign ends on Saturday, September 30th. That is helpful, and I know we're, we're we're like maybe one road to the left here of the topic, but I think this is important for the audience. I'm under the impression that the belief that things will get worse and worse until God comes back, it, it's the dominant position now, but it really wasn't always the dominant position. I, I'm under the impression I forgot where I read it. It was some book talking about how really for a long time. Christians had, or really, I guess, evangelicals in like the European sense, you know, sensed um, an obligation to be part of of essentially establishing God's kingdom to make things better and better to usher in the return of Christ, and that flipped over time. Is that correct, or am I off base there?
0: No, you're you're correct. And up until the all through the 19th century, in particular, Americans were overwhelmingly post-millennialists, so they thought that the reform movements that they were enacting, uh, abolitionism. Temperance movement, those types of things, were part of bringing the kingdom uh, here on earth. And, um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the sort of darker side of that would be manifest destiny was also part of the post millennialism, the idea that God had ordained that Christians sort of take over the entire North American continent to establish the kingdom, more or less. That flips in the 20th century. And th- that's a big part of the story I tell is how. Uh, many evangelicals move from a postmillennial view to a premillennial view. And so when you get to the nineteen seventies and eighties when the, the rise of the Christian right and other things, most of the yeah. most of the key leaders there are premillennial. And so they're looking at out at the world and not thinking that it is the Christian's destiny to sort of take over uh, government. It's actually to um, push back the forces of secular humanism or, or whatever they identify as, as the, the, um, the culprit. But today, you do see a resurgence of more post-millennial views, uh, particularly in the Christian nationalist uh, movement.
1: Okay so audience that that is a very important part that I think will hopefully unlock a lot for you like when you hear certain rhetoric you're kind of able to trace I'm not even saying that person might be even aware that 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 that, that they're drawing on certain belief systems but that's helpful because I as I've, you know, listened more and gotten older, I'm, I have noticed that, especially in the 70s and 80s, and even now we hear a lot of things are worse than ever. Things are getting worse than ever. This is the beginning of the end, any day now. But I also have heard, to your point, Dan, that, that there are some people who are like, well, we have to establish God's kingdom on earth. And it's funny because you're right to your point about, I again, the term is post-millennial, where I think if I had to put myself in a framework, it would be that, but not in the manifest destiny sense, right? In the abolition like trying to maybe reflect what we think the kingdom of God might look like for the sake of all of our neighbors that promotes human flourishing. So I just think it's important for the audience to understand how these two terms actually, they explain a lot of the rhetoric that we hear. And depending on how how you hear people talk about things can kind of give you a better framework of where they're coming from. Um, That's right. That being said, let's get into dispensationalism. So my understanding is that is that dispensationalism um, – Divides like the how God works throughout history, like you said. I think it's over seven dispensations. Is that correct?
0: That's the dominant view. There are there are other views, but yes, seven is the large. Is the <laughs> of main
1: course, thing. there are. It, yes, it can never course. be that simple yeah. in theology, right? Okay, so there are seven, uh, like um, I guess, different moments in history where God works th- in different ways, according to like the dominant di- dispensationalist view. What dispensation are we in right now? Are we in three, seven, four? We are in the second to last,
0: so we're in the sixth, um, oh, okay. and uh, and the the seventh will be the millennium, uh, the the sort of uh, prophesied oh. Revelation twenty millennium, and the sixth one is very special. It's it's different than the previous ones, um, in in part because it's dealing with the church. So the church is the the agent through which God is working in the world in the dispensationalist mode in this dispensation, before this, dispensa- this dispensation and the previous five, God was working with Israel, with the with, with ancient Israel, with the Jewish people, and a, a thing that sets dispensationalists apart from almost every other major Christian tradition is that unlike uh, a Catholic or an Orthodox uh, a Christian or even most Protestants, uh, dispensationalists don't see God transferring His favor. Overall, from Israel to the church, in some type of absolute way, uh, so dispensationalists believe that God has suspended His work with Israel, largely because Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah. That's that's how they talk about it. Um, mm. And so God basically created the church as, uh, and the, any dispensationalist listening, I don't know if you have any listening, but if they were, um, they, they would probably uh, get uptight in, in exactly how I'm saying this. But basically, God created the church as a stopgap um, until. Uh, he would resume work with Israel. And so in this dispensation, it is the church that's the center of the story. And this is where the rapture comes in as, as a major teaching. The rapture is pulling the church out of the earth. It's, it's suddenly just taking it away, almost like pulling out the, the plug in, 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 a, in a flow of water. And then God will resume working with Israel in the to to fulfill the seventh dispensation and so that's one reason why dispensationalists have uh an outsized interest in jews and in the nation of is in the state of israel today is because they see israel as still very significant to god's plans for redeeming the world uh most christians would not put any uh prophetic or religious significance in the state of Israel today. It might be very interesting. There might be reasons to support or or not Israel based on other right. factors. It is the the sort of historic land where the Bible takes place, so it's interesting for that reason. But dispensationalists have this other layer that's about God still needing to fulfill uh his plans, his prophetic plans for the whole earth and he's going to do it through the nation of Israel. So that's what's going to happen in the, at the end of the sixth dispensation, at the end of the dispensation we're in. But so we're, we're you know, closer oh. to the end of the story than the bigger, than the beginning of the story. Um, but, uh, and, and most dispensations think we're, you know, we're very close to the end of this dispensation. They're very interested in reading the newspaper and trying to align that with prophecies that would indicate the rapture is, is coming at some point soon. Uh, but yeah, that's where we're, that's where we're sitting right now in the storyline.
1: All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna uh repeat this back to you to make sure I comprehend. Essentially, what you're telling me is that uh, according to the dominant dispensationalist view, there's always nuance to that. We are out of seven, we're in the sixth one. The sixth one deals primarily with the church, like the Christian church. And God is working through the church in a unique way to kind of, like you said, be like um, you know, a temporary pause or stopgap, a plug on something until eventually those Christians get raptured out and then God will, will start working through Israel back to how, I guess, how he was back in the day to uh, eventually restore God's reign on earth. Is that kind of the the belief yes, system? That,
0: that's right. Um, yeah, and
1: and this is where um, the, the literal reading
0: of prophecy comes in. So many of the prophecies in either the, the Hebrew prophetic books, Jeremiah, Isaiah, places like that, and in Revelation, uh, they reference Israel. And for for most Christians, that the, those references to Israel are either symbolic or spiritualized uh, to mean the church today. That God is actually mm. working through the church and will fulfill those prophecies uh, through the church for you know world peace and and other things. For dispensationalists, they read it literally in the sense that when they see the word Israel, they mean no. It's the same unit of people. It's the same sort of genetic line as the ancient Israelites. And, and so they, they make that distinction. And one really way, crucial way this plays into politics and, or in relation to society is that uh, dispensationalists do not um, see there being any earthly role for the church. That is Israel's, Israel's mission is to sort of redeem the world. It is the church's role to evangelize and pull people out of the world in order to get to heaven in order to be raptured or join in communion with Jesus in heaven. And so for the earliest uh, dispensationalist thinkers, they made this a very stark, you could say, dualism between heaven and earth, between the church and, and Israel. And it was seen by them as an, a, a mixing of God's purposes for the church to be strongly involved in politics or society at all. And that might be surprising to people because often dispensationalists in recent decades are very political. Um, but I think there is a through line in that, um, they, they, they continue to see the role of the church as ultimately a vessel to convert people, to, to bring people into, uh, into the church. And that, that comes from this, this sharp distinction in their theology. Um, so anyway, we we can, we can leave it there on that, but that gives a sense of, um, if, if what I've just described, um, Uh, Makes any sense? It would make sense to someone who was who was a dispensationalist to sort of put them in the story and give them a purpose, which is largely to engage in missions uh, globally and locally.
1: Okay, let me ask you one more quick question on this, then we'll we'll move on. I have to know through the eyes of a dispensationalist, since the Jews are very much integral to like the end of the world and you know God redeeming everything. I guess. What are our Jews? Are they going to heaven at the end of all time? Or are they just, I mean, in the evangelical sense, are they going to hell? Cause I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to understand like for, for uh, my tradition definitely has dispensationalist like leanings and it was all about the gospel and saving people so that way they, they don't burn in hell forever. Um, at the same time though, I'm hearing you say, but also this group really wants to work in, uh, in, in, in believes that Jewish people as they are. Um, you know, are going to be used by God for great things in the seventh dispensation. So what happens to them? Are, are they saved or not, according to, to dispensationists?
0: Yeah, and there, there's debate on this, and it's changed over time. Uh, there there are versions that would say, and, and that would say basically there's a dual covenant uh, theology going on here, that God actually has two separate covenants with two different people, and this strikes many other Christians as problematic, if not heretical, that that there's sort of a carve out for one peop- one group of people, and then everyone else has a, a different gospel that they have to believe. Um, the, the that's one view, and there there's definitely been a tradition of of viewing something like that. And in that in that scheme, even in the sort of end of time, uh, there's going to be God's heavenly people and God's earthly people, and they're not going to mix. So it's sort of like. Um, uh, it, it'll happen you know, forever, there'll be this separation. I would say most dispensationalists don't subscribe to that view, certainly not anymore, and they actually look that uh, you know, Jews will convert to uh, see Jesus as their Messiah, and they have different timings of when exactly that will happen. Many dispensationalists think that's going to happen, um, uh, or is, is actually happening now, or will happen right around the rapture time. Um, and and they don't see a contradiction, which m- most Jews would, of course, of converting to uh, Christianity and staying Jewish. For a dispensationalist, that is the calling of every Jew is to recognize Jesus uh, is Lord. Uh, but this is where some of the the really uh, net, uh, complicated stuff happens with like Christian Zionism, because you have uh, right. Israelis who are interested in this support from these Christians, who seem pretty politically important in a big country like the U.S., and yet they have these designs or these teachings about what a good Jew is or, or sort of what Jews what's going to happen to the Jews that feel very threatening or or sort of hostile right. to their identity. <laughs> so this is I mean this is one reason I was drawn to this idea this topic because it's so interesting. Um but I would say that that's the majority view is 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 dispensationalists are looking for the conversion of Jews to uh Christianity, but but to remain uh practicing Jewish as well, they would see that as as not a contradiction.
1: Um In that book I I mentioned earlier, uh, A Brief History of Christian Zionism, uh, the author—I'm so bummed I'm blanking on his name—but the author talks about um, how, at least in the beginning, uh, most Jews were not on board for going back to, like, you know— Uh, Palestine and and making a nation state that like, wasn't the thing in their psyche. Um, And it took a lot of time and convincing and, you know, a lot of work from, I think it was in England and just, you know, a lot of like evangelicals in Europe to kind of get this ball rolling. Then finally in the U S things took off. How much of that did dispensationalism play uh, in kind of the, the growing support going from a fringe idea? Like, are you crazy? Not even Jewish people are on board with this to now an actually established nation state of Israel in you know, in Palestine, how much did, was dispensationalism a big player in 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 that journey?
0: Right, and I think the book you're you're thinking of is a short history of of Christian Zionism. It's by a guy named Donald Lewis, who um, was a yes. professor at Regent. He actually yes. just passed. He yes. just passed away. Yes, uh, he a passed away. Yeah,
1: I remember because um, I tried to get an interview with him, and the and the book publisher said he passed away. And I was I was of course saddened and also disappointed because the book was so enlightening for me. It was so helpful.
0: So anyway, yeah, yeah, that's right. I actually I, I I think my endorsements on the back of that book. It was a really good read in in um in manuscript form as well. Um, yeah, dispensationalism has a definite role to play in the growth of uh Christian Zionism. It, what's interesting is dispensationalism tends to be an American. Movement. It, it, it's largely American, and the story of Christian Zionism is much bigger than that, and it, it involves a lot of British people and and it, broader Protestant uh, uh, conversation. In the U.S., it's a major um, force for popularizing it. And there's a there's a, f- a pretty famous guy in the late 19th century named William Blackstone, who create who wrote something called the Blackstone Memorial. And, and presented it to the U.S. president at the time, uh, which was a memorial basically calling for the U.S. to carve out a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. Uh, this was 1891, so even before the political Zionism of Theodore Herzl is on the scene. Now, what's uh, you know remarkable about the, the the Blackstone Memorial is the U.S. has zero influence in Palestine in 1891. That is a province. Run by the Ottoman Empire at that time, mm-hmm. um, and it's sort of uh, pretty presumptuous to think that the U.S. could go in and you know carve out anything in the in the Middle East right. in ninety one. But but there, that's right. you know that's a part of the uh, American uh, culture as well, I guess, is is uh, wanting to do things like that. But that was a really early sign, and th- that memorial was re-presented to Woodrow Wilson in nineteen sixteen during World War One, and this is right on the cusp of the Balfour Declaration, which actually does sort of set the the whole story in motion, um, for, uh, for the, um, protectorate of Palestine during the interwar period and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but Blackstone was indicative of a small, but pretty influential group of dispensationalists who were actively promoting Zionism alongside Jewish Zionists. And, um, certainly when you get to the, uh, to, last 50 years or so, uh, evangelicals who come out of a dispensationalist culture. Not all of them are dispensationalist in some doctrinaire way, um, but many of them become the leaders of the Christian Zionist uh, movement in the US. Today the main uh, figure on that front is a pastor in Texas named John Hagee, who runs runs, um, Christians United for Israel, which is a massive lobby group. There's tens of, I think there are over 10 million members of that group now. which, just to put it in context, it would be like the almost the entire American Jewish community um, is about, I think it's a 12 million or 14 million in the US. And so there's just 10 million in this one Christian lobby group that claim to speak for all Christians uh, about supporting Israel. But Hagee himself is someone who is is a Pentecostal and has a lot of uh, interesting theology, but he, ultimately his end time stuff is very dispensationalist. And he credits... Um, he credits that for at least in part for his love of Israel. So it's 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 been an influential, though not I would say determinative, um, the- tradition in Christian Zionism.
1: That's helpful, Th- definitely helpful. So okay, let's talk about John Nelson Darby. All right. Now, I, I'm i going to tell you two things I've heard. Um, first, on one hand, I've heard that he's kind of like the father of the modern dispensationalist movement. I've also heard that some people are like, well, not exactly. Like, yes, but no. Like, there was other influences going on. John Nelson Darby was the founder of the Plymouth Brethren uh, tradition. I actually have a friend of mine who still attends their church services very conservative you know women wear head coverings kind of vibe um but he doesn't see himself as as a dispensationalist anymore which is a whole different conversation but talk to me about john nelson darby and at least his role in in creating or or popularizing dispensationalism Right, and
0: and I don't, in my view, you can't really tell the story of dispensations without Darby being a really central player. So I see him as pretty decisive. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, he he uh, he's a he founded the Plymouth Brethren movement. He's a he was a disaffected uh, Anglican priest who started out in his twenties uh, trying to convert Catholics in Ireland to Anglicanism, to the Church of Ireland. Got really um, frustrated with that, and the critique he had of that. Was that um, the Anglican Church was far too interested in uh, basically helping the British Empire rule Ireland than actually converting the Catholics to uh, Protestantism? And so he had the, he, he developed this really strong critique of empire, actually, which it might be surprising to people, um, particularly from a from a church perspective, that the Anglican Church was just basically a lackey for the British Empire, and and he sort of pulls all the way back from that and says. Um, the church should have no involvement in politics at all. So you're seeing how some of the ideas um, start. And he develops a, a theory of the church that makes it entirely, as he sees it, otherworldly. And so um, the, one reason they're called the Plymouth Brethren is because they refused to be called anything else. And so they were called the Brothers from Brethren because they didn't want to be called... Um, the even Protestants. They just wanted to be called Christians. Uh, they're very primitivist in, in how they understood this. Um, they also reject the idea of lay, uh, of a clergy. So there are no pastors yep. in the brethren tradition. It's all lay-led. So Darby was a clergy member. He quits that and becomes this uh, traveling evangelist for this type of Christianity and really develops the ideas of the rapture, of his premillennial readings of the Bible, his, um, his understanding of the dispensations all throughout the 1830s and 1840s. And this is a time where there's a lot of apocalyptic speculation happening in the Anglo-American world. If, if you're familiar with the Millerites, the people who thought the world was going to end in New England and sort of got on top of their houses on a specific night to wait for yes. it, um, and then it didn't happen and it was called the Great Disappointment. Um, and yeah. Seventh-day Adventists sort of come out of that uh, that tradition today. But there was a lot happening in that period. And Darby was part of that um, energy, prophetic energy of the time. Um, and he ends up uh, really focusing on on the United Kingdom. That's his home country. That's where he uh, first cares about it. But the brethren become very mission centric, mission oriented. And he ends up identifying the U S as a, as a promising field, because there's this disestablishment of religion from the state, at least officially at the federal level. And so he sees an opening for a type of Christianity that is more conducive to his type, which is one that's not bound up in, uh, state churches and sort of the King is the head of the church type thing. Um, and he also sees the American church as very, uh, uh, corrupt, and apostate based on his theology, and so he sees it as ripe for um, for conversion to his 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 views. So he ends up spending almost uh, over seven years in the U.S. in the 1860s and 70s, right during the Civil War and right after during Reconstruction. Um, and and that's really where his ideas start grabbing hold in the U.S. is in the 1860s and 70s among Americans who um, who are reeling from the Civil War and Reconstruction.
1: Why, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of layers to this question, but, you know, what are some of the, in your research, what are some of the big threads that made the culture like prime to receive this way of seeing like the Bible? I mean, obviously, like you said earlier, this is a pretty new way of thinking about scripture, um, but at least in my context, I feel like it's just in the air I breathe now. And for a lot of us, especially folks who are new to this, like renegotiation of faith journey journey. We're all kind of shocked to to know like, oh, wait, the rapture isn't like an ancient belief system that that has existed since the beginning. It's 150 years old. What do you think were some of the elements at play that really made society just ready to take it and say, yes, this is it. Let's run with it.
0: Well, one is, is the 1860s and the Civil War era were very apocalyptic. It was an apocalyptic moment. People thought the world was ending. Um, all over the place, and so um, Darby's view of these things was one of many, but there there was some just added popularity um, because it seemed to be his his apocalypticism seemed to be fitting what was happening um, at the time. But a more interesting uh, way. Can I say yeah, one ahead. thing
1: real quick about yeah. that, or ask a, a follow up to that yeah. point? do you think it's fair to say that there were a few things that that seemed like they were predicted correctly? Because I remember reading like there were a few things that someone like Darby or someone would say this is going to happen and it it came to pass kind of furthering the belief that, oh, maybe he's actually onto something. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Uh, Yeah. Darby was not one who liked to, unlike some of his followers later, he did not like to predict specific things. I think he he was aware that that you're, you're. It's like a gambler, right? Like you might get right a couple times, but ultimately that's going to burn you <laughs> at some point. Right. Um, there were other predictions, particularly around um, developments in Europe and the sort of post-Napoleon era and how politics were playing out, that seemed to conform to some people's predictions of a a. Um, a, a sort of consolidating Europe and uh, there was, there was a lot of revolutions in 1848 that were uh, suppressed and some people saw that as prophetically significant. A lot of people were still dating the end times to having something to do with the French Revolution, which was uh, not yet a hundred years old at that point. So th- there was definitely, if you were of that type of persuasion, um, there was a lot that you could put into your your data set to say, yeah, things are happening. I should also, this is the time when, uh, things like numerology become really popular. Mm -hmm. And so there are people sort of combing through the Bible to try to align numbers with things happening in the world. Um, so that, that's another sort of strand that's getting popular here. But what was interesting to me is that for, I I actually don't think the main appeal of someone like Darby was the end times stuff that was in there. And, and that was, that was definitely of interest to a lot of people, but more interesting was his, uh, view of the church, that the church should be entirely otherworldly and only focused on missions, which really appealed to pastors in, uh, particularly the border states, So states that were Northern during the civil war. Uh, officially, but had very strong Southern sympathies among their population, which meant that it was absolutely miserable to be a pastor. In, uh, in a place like that because you had sort of official loyalties and then cultural loyalties and you were being asked as a pastor at that time to sort of navigate that. And I follow particularly one really important pastor in St. Louis named James Brooks, who uh, basically is drawn to Darby's teachings because it seemed like what Darby was offering was a way for him to back out of these debates over uh, who was at fault during the Civil War, what does Reconstruction look like? What is the church's role in racial justice? These things that were really hot topics in the 1870s. And to say, none of that is the church's concern. The church is Mm -hmm. about global missions, and we are called to focus on that. And in fact, if we focus on these political issues, that is a distraction from what we are really called to do. And I, I sympathize with Brooks. I, I think I find that to be actually a really tragic choice that a lot of um, people after him make as well. And they have this theology yeah. now that's enforcing it. I do have sympathy with one way he came to that view, which was as someone who was in a state that was officially of the North, he was part of the culture during the Civil War in the North that was very, you could call it Christian nationalist. Um, I, I, it doesn't have the exact same framing as we have today, but the North during the civil war thought that God was on the side of the North. They were Mm. loyalty oaths for pastors. You had to pledge your, your loyalty to the union. There were, you know, hymns, the battle hymn of the Republic comes out at this time. God is marching with the abolitionist armies to sort of you know vanquish evil, and for someone like Brooks, mm. that was problematic just in how he had to run his church. He also was um, uh, grossed out about the the merging of church and state right there and so i do have sympathy for that because that's something that many historians have pointed out was that there was a war fervor on both sides of the civil war and for those of us who want to see some type of separation of church and state well during the civil war there was none on either side there was Mm, entire mergers, and so that was part of what he was reacting to but he was also reacting to this prospect of of evacuating himself from having to weigh in on reconstruction and other things and the person that he really influences um and picks this up is Dwight Moody, who is the biggest revivalist in America at the time, who has this same idea that what Christians are called to do is not to relitigate who was at fault during the Civil War, but it's to have a reconciliation, particularly between white Northerners and white Southerners, for the cause of global missions and, and for the cause of, of, of converting Americans to Christianity. And this is sort of the choice that is offered in this period to um, and there's this theology the Darby theology under it that really allows this to to feel like it's not um, making some type of instrumental choice, but really just following the teachings of the Bible.
1: Okay, yeah, it's important. It's helpful to have a background of where this belief system of hey, just preach the gospel. You know, social issues aren't really of concern to us. We just have to get people saved. Where it kind of comes from, at least. A, a, at least um regarding how it was expressed to me in my cultural context. Yeah. Obviously, uh that has shifted, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that has changed big time. Um, and my understanding of the narrative is that the big shift really comes with the moral majority. I mean, you know, up until then, we're we're evangelicals political. Well, yeah, maybe they voted and stuff, but they weren't like so uniformed and concerned about politics and and embedding their systems and ways of being in the political body to, you know, reshape the nation and take it back for God, so to speak, until really Jerry Falwell and Robert Reich and a couple of others kind of come along and are like, actually, you know, we feel like... Um, we feel like the government is encroaching on our religious liberties to maintain segregation in the schools or whatever it would be. We have to get organized and start pushing back. Is that kind of the narrative or is there something else I'm missing to kind of, you know, uh, demonstrate how we got here today with some of this stuff?
0: I think you're I think you're right. I mean, it's it's just demonstrable that that's what uh, happens for someone like Falwell. So uh, Jerry Falwell founded the Moral Majority in the late 1970s. In the early, in the mid 1960s, you know, he gave a famous uh, ministers and marchers uh, uh, sermon where he basically said it is not the role of any minister to be marching for civil rights because that's mixing politics and, and, Religion in a way that's unhealthy, and Falwell was trained as a dispensationalist, so he was drawing on some of these categories to make that judgment and to say uh, someone like Martin Luther King Jr., who's also a minister, should not be dedicating his time to civil rights; he should be dedicating his time to converting people to Christianity. Um, you know, fast forward 15 years, and you're almost getting the exact opposite take from Falwell, which is if if you're pro-life. Uh, or your minister should be in the pro-life march, like they need to be front and center in these marches. And so, yeah, what changed there? Uh, I don't think Falwell's theology changed much. Uh, He's still Mm. a dispensationalist in the 1980s. I think what changes is there's a reassessment uh, of what the culture, what the culture's relationship to the church is. And if you go back to the 19th century, to the reconstruction era, the idea was the church's primary role is to support missions and is to spread the gospel. And the way to do that at that time was to um, not have to deal with uh, other political issues like reconstruction, which seemed like side issues. It seemed like racial justice was not core to spreading the gospel, so we don't need to worry about that. If you fast forward a century to the uh, 1970s, there's this growing sense that there's a secular humanist threat to the church. And this is where I go through and I look at people like Tim LaHaye and Jerry Falwell, mm. who are constructing a very robust argument in the 1970s, that what they're up against is not just sort of run of the mill secularism or atheism. It is a concerted conspiracy. I mean, they'll use that that term to take over the government, to take over the, the education system, to take over media, all that kind of stuff. And, and what will happen if the secular humanists do this is that the church is going to be outlawed or it's going to be suppressed. It's going to look like the Soviet Union in the United States. And so at this right. point, that, that core mission of the church to go evangelize people and to spread the gospel is at threat. And so a lot of the framing of the Christian rights uh, leadership argument in the 1970s is precisely this it's to we need to defend the church we need to save the church from the secular humanist threat um and and we need to get active politically to do that and so that's where i see the through line is they're they're reassessing the threats out in the culture and how to respond to them but the at least from their perspective the the central cause is the same which is to give the church ultimate autonomy to do the work of the church. And so they see all these types of threats like feminism and, um, and, and for so- particularly in the South, uh, uh, integration and other things, as these are, these are hampering the ability of the church, particularly as there's a sense that the legal system is going to come down on them to force them to change, um, that, that what they need to do now is defend the church, just like in the 1870s, the way to defend the church was to get out of these, uh, get out of these issues.
1: Yeah. And listen, you know, I'm going to put my own commentary on that. You don't have to respond to this day. I'm not going to put words in your mouth. But, you know, for the folks listening, I think it's another reminder of just how baked into what was seen as the gospel and just evangelicalism was intertwined with white supremacy. I mean, the fact that 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 Jerry Falwell, you know, got political because he saw uh, the government, you know, making integration Happened as a threat to the church, I think, just kind of reinforces just where he was coming from and kind of what was in the water from this particular strain that was so concerned about, about preaching the gospel until uh, you know they were forced to you know have black people in their schools. Um, and obviously, there, there's a lot of layers to that, and we, we've had mm-hmm. theologians and scholars on kind of covering that in detail. But I think that's an important note for the audience out there just to understand, like. You know, I, I I I don't like saying this. Because I don't like sounding extreme, but too often when I talk to people who have done the work and have written the books, you're like four or five degrees away, no matter what the topic is, back to some kind of like white supremacist viewpoint by someone that 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 saw it as a non-negotiable for them that them that that then got them either to change their mind on something or become politically active, uh, and so I just wanted to highlight that part for the audience. Um, you know, that being said, we we live in a time now like like you mentioned, you know, Christian nationalism is is a thing, and and there are I'm I'm following people like Sean Foy and Lauren Boebert and you know Marjorie Taylor Green. And it's hard for me to kind of pinpoint what they're drawing from because in on, on one hand, I hear a lot of language from people who are like, the world's getting worse and worse, nothing we can do about it, and that means God's coming back soon. But then some of those same people, especially like the Lauren Boberts of the world, are like, oh my God, we have to stop the evil left from taking over the nation. I'm like, wait, well, which is it? Like, do things have to get worse and worse so God comes back? Or are you trying to like usher God's kingdom to earth by changing policy and laws? Any insight to how you can kind of help us parse some of this stuff out?
0: Yeah, it's really complicated. I, one thing I'll say is eschatology or, or all this sort of stuff about you know who? What do we need to usher in, or, or where's everything going? Though that's influential, but not determinative for how people have their politics. So there's not like an obvious uh, pre-millennialist politics or obvious post-millennialist politics. There's there's people who adopt these theological positions and then work them out in relation to all their other views um, to get to certain political views. So there's not an, an easy line, straight line to draw from one to the other. Um, one of the things I, I look at in the um, in the in the growth of the Christian right is this development on the theological front of this sense that uh, so you might you might look back and say well dispensationalists have this idea of this any moment rapture and so there's really nothing a dispensationalist could do politically that's really of much worth because every, everything could end tomorrow or regardless. Uh, Jesus is coming back and he'll fix everything anyway. So when you when you look closely, though, at people like Tim LaHaye and Jerry Falwell, they develop this idea um, that there is actually something Christians can do, which is, and they, they even call it things like the... Um, the pre-tribulation tribulation. So the tribulation is is this period of time where uh, after the rapture, everyone will be oppressed, and they talk about a pre-tribulation tribulation, which is a novel idea that's not in the you know go back you know to Darby. He's not talking about a pre-tribulation tribulation, but Lahay and and others have this as a way to give agency to American to to American Christians to say while we don't know when the rapture is coming or anything, we do know that this threat that is encroaching um, is coming. And so there there is a pre-tribulation tribulation that we can actually um, uh, either allow it to happen or to oppose. And so that gets them in line with other Christians who don't have this type of theology and don't have a hang up with trying to um, influence policy, politics in a more direct way. And so when you get to today... Um, you, you can't really, you know, people who say things are getting worse and worse, that doesn't necessarily disqualify them from also saying, and there's something you can do about it, uh, by voting mm. for me or, or whatever. And that is this interesting, I mean, I, I, go so far in the book, I think at some point I call it heretical. Um, I, that's me casting around terms that I probably shouldn't, but, um, but it's a total innovation in, in the system of, of dispens or the sort of tradition of dispensationalism. And it gives this, uh, impetus to be politically active. So when you look today, um, there are all types of, of leaders out there who are invoking different sort of scenarios of what's gonna happen. Um, I would say part of the answer is, as we talked about earlier, a lot of this stuff isn't actually theological anymore. It's ideological, yeah. it's political. And so it's not. there's not necessarily a biblical uh, rooting to, to even the ideas that are coming to them. But when there, the Bible is invoked, it can now be invoked in many different ways to to basically make any any of the points people want to make in this sort of uh, uh, end times uh situation to where you have to dig deeper and understand well what you know what tradition is this congressperson coming out of or or who do they hang out with i mean that's a key one for me is mm. many of these politicians have you know p- um religious advisors or or particular people in their state that they hang out with and those people tend to be a little more clear on um on what they're doing or what they believe that doesn't necessarily mean the politician believes it, um, fully, but you can get sort of a sense of where people are coming from. And there's tons of terms that are related to this dominionism, reconstructionism, seven mountain dominionism, all these things, um, have their own sort of tradition. And that's one thing I wanted to just highlight in the book is, um, there's a way you can actually trace this stuff and understand why certain types of isms in, Christian, uh, in, in evangelicalism in particular, get popular at certain times, but then also lose popularity at other times. And so much of it is understanding the social, cultural, political context around which this theology is being talked about.
1: I think what's interesting is I hope the audience is is realizing that contrary to the claims from so many people in these spaces that they're just standing on God's absolute truth, or that you know God never changes, or that you know we we can't uh, be affected by culture. Culture, politics, economics all actually play in to how all of us are trying to make sense of the Christian tradition. And I think that that shift from um, as dispensationalists, we have nothing to to do with politics to, oh my God, we have to get involved with politics is a great demonstration of that, of how even people who might not think that they are actually adapting to culture and actually being influenced by culture. Actually, are and their theology shifts along with it, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just—I think it's safe to say—that's just how life is. I mean, when you look at, at the big, you know, tradition of of the church, you know, uh, historically with all of its schisms and beliefs, you can see how culture does influence, you know, how the church interprets scripture or how it organizes a, a, as a system or how it gets involved politically or not. So, I, I think that that that's a point that is worth drawing out as you're talking. That I'm thinking to myself. Right. This is more evidence to me that that sometimes the dogma does not match the actions um, of the people who are claiming that people like me who have changed my beliefs are just postmodern deconstructionists or something like that, you know? Um, yeah. the sub the subtext to this book is how the evangelical battle over the end time shaped a nation. We have a few minutes left here. I, I'm kind of curious um, how influential in just the general culture of america do you think dispensationalism uh is um generally speaking at this point it
0: it's hard to judge that in any really precise sense but i i trace a few different legacies of dispensationalism that go into all different parts of culture. So I think you know one easy way to measure is on book sales and sort of things you can you can trace like that. And so we know that um, in the 1970s, the best-selling nonfiction book was How Lindsay's Late Great Planet Earth, which was a popularized version of dispensational end times uh, theology. It sold 10 million copies in that decade, 30 million over its lifetime till today. Just unbelievable numbers. If you if you I. I You know, most books must be nice, right? Yeah, must be nice. (laughs) Imagine Uh, those royalties. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, We've talked about the Left Behind books. That's uh, a a series that has some 15 main uh, main books in it, and then a ton of other side books. It sold upwards of 60, 70 million copies at this point. So there are these big numbers that show there's just a big market for this type of stuff. Um, I I mentioned uh, the 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 leftovers movie on HBO. I, I actually start the book by talking a bit about one of the Avengers movies, one of the more recent ones, where yeah. there, there's the snap. Um, it's it's this oh, yeah. uh, this plot device that I'm sure many people know, where suddenly half of everyone just disappears. And right. uh, and, and as someone who grew up in the dispensationist world, that was obviously, to me, a rapture motif. And I actually did some digging. The same. And, <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and so that's another way that this has really penetrated our culture, is that there is just this general sense, and there's a ton of movies you could cite that are more religiously oriented Um, that that this is what many Americans think a Christian believes, like a traditional Christian view of the end times is a dispensationalist view. And so in that sense, dispensationalism has had a very strong influence about how most Americans understand what it means to be a Christian, that this is the particular sort of theology that that goes along with that. I also speculate uh, about the sense of, there's a secularized premillennialism, I think, on a lot of our politics and culture, a secularized sense that things are getting worse and a sense that we don't really know what's coming next and you can you can hear some of that in our conversations about environmentalism or how technology wh- you know what what's the future of technology um, there's also a sense of pessimism on the ground level of just can can we change anything C- can anything actually be improved upon and the i don't want to blame or credit dispensationalists with sort of giving us that but boy if you're right. looking if you if you go 200 years from now and, and you look back on the early 21st century, and you try to identify, you know, what are what are the five or six strands of longer thinking that probably played into the moment we're in now and how we view the future. I think hmm. something around Christian end times uh, traditions uh, and the way they've just. Uh, uh, gone into all parts of our culture uh, is, is a big part of that. So that's my, yeah. that's my big claim on the, on the sort of cultural level. I think within the evangelical culture, which is a major culture, there was a book a few years ago called Rapture Culture. Um, where the author wondered if if rapture culture is the su- is the main culture and we're all just subcultures uh, living in it, um, mm. I think that was an overstatement. Wow. But um, but if you look at the evangelical culture, I think dispensationalism has been you know one of the dominant traditions in the last hundred years, shaping the theology for sure, but shaping also um, uh, the the popular culture, the way uh, Christians think about media, the way uh, Christians. Um, uh, uh, think about uh, business and commerce, and and one way I I would just articulate this is um, dispensationalism basically cuts off a very strong uh, theology of engaging with society because we talked about the the church is about otherworldly things, and so uh, you mentioned white supremacy before as as a dominating uh, theme for a lot of of dispensationalists. Um, I, I I don't doubt that's true, and I I I can talk about particular people where I think that really did animate them, I think the more prevalent view among dispensationalists, particularly those who weren't running a radio show or writing books or whatever, was a default to the status quo. At at every moment, it was um, a a sort of uncritical approach to American society that celebrated Mm. certain things and just pushed aside uh, negative things. And I think that Mm. is one of the legacies of dispensationalism is because of the theology and the way it doesn't allow in an easy way to, to... Conceptualize how the church should relate to culture. It it basically backs off of that whole conversation until moments of crisis, and, and gives and, and doesn't equip regular. Uh, pew christians uh into a a way to think about these things and so for most of american history the status quo was some type of white privilege and and segregation and so that's what most dispensationalists they didn't have the tools in their toolbox to think through those things from a biblical perspective they just adopted the cultural perspective on those things and i think Mm, that legacy has been very powerful in evangelicalism up to today
1: you know that part I, I definitely agree with okay last question for you this is more of like I want your opinion you, you, you've given me so far your your approach which I really appreciate has been very like here's just what I've researched here's kind of the data I'm not making judgments on this you just do what you want and I appreciate that that's really important now I want some of Dan's perspective on this now this might be a controversial question but hear me out I as you're talking as as I'm thinking about you know the words you're saying and dispensationalism I just I hear echoes and I I want to be kind um we'll say I'm hearing more echoes of, of the more recent iteration of dispensationalism we'll say not so much maybe the the past of like almost conspiracy type thinking I almost see like some overlap between like the QAnon stuff that you know there's this dark cabal out there that's trying to take over the country and you know we need someone to kind of just fight back or um, the deep state, something like that. I'm just hearing echoes of like the same kind of perspective that, you know, hey, at, at any minute, at any moment, we're going to just be zapped up to some other planet dimension and the world's going to go down to the crapper and then the Jews will take over uh, and yada yada. And it's like, OK, that sounds a little conspiratorial to me. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, as you were researching, did you start kind of thinking like, well, uh, I'm not sure like how biblical this is compared to how conspiratorial some of this stuff might sound?
0: Yeah. And uh, um, I will try to give my opinion, though. I, I often I, I can't get out of my sort of scholarly mode. So I, I try to be uh, I thought I was giving my opinion to him up until this point. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I, th- this this thought came across my mind a number of times. I being who I am. I do want to differentiate and say this is not it doesn't it's not necess- necessary in the system of dispensationalism to get super conspiratorial. It does seem to be a tendency over time. And yes. yeah. um, you go all the way back, I mean this this was all the way back to the 1860s and there were conspiracy theories among dispensationalists about um Napoleon the 3rd and what he was going to do in in France that you know, resonate a lot with, uh, conspiracy theories you can see today in the sense of, of sort of seeing, uh, machinations on the global scale that are going to lead to some massive, uh, event that will harbing, you know, bring in Jesus's second coming or something like that. So I think that goes all the way back to, um, to the origins of dispensationalism. There's always been a strain in the book. I talk about weird to, to us, weird things like pyramidology and numerology that play a big role in how dispensationalists develop their ideas at different points. So I think that's always been a strand. And I definitely think I, the fall of dispensationalism has opened up a massive vacuum for millions mm. of Christians to be formed and shaped by uh, pseudo Christian and, uh, uh, uh sort of consumerist types of christian culture that many many are interested in uh in conspiracy in conspiracy theories for the sake of political um political ends and so th- i call it pop dispensationalism this whole sort of field of just consumer oriented dispensationalist uh culture and i really see the legacy this is one of the sad sort of parts of the story to me is this is one of the big legacies of the entire dispensationalist project is this popularization that happened that many of the you know, sort of uh, real theologians also abetted and supported because they thought this was a way to spread their uh, spread their teachings. That that the, the right. legacy is in consumerism and in politics, and and those things are not that separate. But there there are different you know sort of modes for distributing something, um, for televangelism or something, and something in in the political sphere. But that um that conspiratorial thinking is one of the main legacies. It's it's why people can draw connections that seem utterly, uh, unconnected to most of us, but because of a particular reading of the Bible and a particular reading of the news seem to line up, uh, for these people. And they're also looking for, I, I have a couple pages on QAnon and, and, and I'm, I try to be very careful on, on, uh, I don't want to blame dispensationalists more than they deserve, uh, for QAnon, but there's a right. pattern of history that is very dispensationalist like it's, it's a pattern of something horrible is happening. And there will be a a sudden sort of breaking in of uh, someone to put things right and uh, for QAnon, that's all these conspiracies, and then Trump is sort of this this uh, you know figure that's going to to correct things. In a more theological sense, there's the sense that Jesus will come back and correct these things. And I I, I didn't want to pass by that and not acknowledge that there's a similar form here that is not necessary. You don't have to have this way of viewing the world, but because of the history uh, and because of the traditions that many of the Christian right activists and leaders come out of, this seems to make sense to them at an intuitive level. And I think part of that story is dispensationalism
1: now that's really helpful i mean i yeah i, I remember uh, harold camping you know when i was a kid on the radio was always predicting the end of the world and people were selling their houses and you know i i agree like i i it lends itself to that type of making connections over everything to see what you want to see. Now, we, we, we all can be guilty of that. I, yeah. what, what I don't want to do is make it seem like, oh, those people were so silly and ignorant, and we are just so much more enlightened. We're all susceptible to making connections to make sense out of the world, right? That That's what right. we're all trying to do. So it's right. an understandable thing. But with the rise of QAnon and just some of the you know absurd uh, connections that obviously are not connected but they make them connected. I'm like, you know, some of what you're talking about. I, I, I can kind of see them sh- sharing some of the those similarities. So I, I'm, ha- I'm glad to hear you say that because, again, like any theology. Any belief can be used for good or for bad, and and nothing is uh is always good or always bad. I'm sure there were, there were plenty of fine dispensationalists doing great work, but as we discussed, and I'm thinking about even the Zionism part and just all these layers, I'm like, wow, it seems like dispensationalism, broadly speaking, really did did a number on like the the psyche of of the American conscience, but also on the evangelical conscience, and I think ultimately it was. It was part of, you know, just a very um, uh, like anemic view of the Christian tradition that is convinced it's absolutely correct, but is quite ignorant of even itself in the in the tradition that it claims to stand on, you know. And so I that's kind of my takeaway so far from like what I understand, even from this conversation is like, I think maybe they they were well-meaning people. But overall, I would say it, it, it's a net loss, not a net gain.
0: Yeah, I, I won't weigh in on that, uh, on the net loss or gain, um, uh, at least not <laughs> right on, now. Come on, Dan! I, <laughs> I will say, um, this, has been, this is one of my major critiques of dispensationalism is, it, as, as far as I can tell, very hard for the, the people within the tradition to understand themselves as a tradition. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a key move to be critical of yourself, is to understand that you're not just unme- you don't just have an unmediated access to the Bible or an unmediated access to the truth that you're coming out of a tradition. And as a historian, I want to say for everybody everywhere, that's a key part of being, uh, you know, well-informed about where you are situated in history is understanding that you have a tradition that shapes how you see the world. And so that's one thing I I don't think dispensationalists have, have tended to do very well. Um, there are, there are exceptions, but, uh, for the most part. Um, and then the other thing I'll, I'll, I'll just end with is, um, While there's been this massive popular influence of dispensationalism, within the evangelical uh, seminary world, within the sort of Christian thought world, whatever that might be, um, dispensationalism has basically disappeared. Um, And this is a remarkable development. This is another part of the book. 50 years ago, you would have never guessed this, that basically today... Most of the, what you call the mainstream evangelical seminaries from like places like Fuller Seminary to Gordon-Conwell to Trinity have almost no dispensationalists on their faculty. And in fact, there's many uh, people there who are dead set against dispensationalism. They're anti-dispensationalists and they've written books against it. And this to me is a sign that um, there is a, this is part of the fall of dispensationalism. There is sort of a shelf life on how long this is going to be in the in, in any type of theological sense, a coherent system. I think there is a uh, a long life for the pop dispensation, which I, I will weigh in there and say, I think that's been a really bad development. The pop dispensationalist, um, last 50 years of that have been really bad for the formation of Christians in America. Um, and and actually outside of America because of the missions focus of a lot of dispensationalists. And there's dispensationalists all over the globe, uh, people who follow that teaching. But within the the sort of theological world, this is a, uh, basically, a dead tradition. There are some pockets of people who still do this, but the mainstream uh, conversation has moved on, and that's a remarkable development too. That I, I take hope in at least, which is there are certain things that dispensationalism gave to that conversation, particularly of refocus on the end times and eschatology, which I don't think is always a bad thing to to, sure. to do. Eschatology as a part of, of your theology, um, but uh, but ultimately, um, the critiques of dispensationalism have really landed hard, and and institutionally. A lot of places that used to teach dispensationalism as sort of core to their identity, including many Bible schools and colleges, now are—you'd never guess that. And, and as a student, you'd never even hear the term dispensationalism if you were on campus, and no faculty mm. believe it either. So that's a pretty recent development, but it's one that I think is really important to understanding the bigger picture of how how this developed, and, and frankly, how ideas work in in the evangelical world, which is often the ideas that are most popular. On the ground, don't actually have a lot of academic credentials
1: behind them anymore,
0: um, but 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 so it goes, I guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've been learning that more and more as I talk to more and more scholars I'm like wait this has been out of vogue for for that long I didn't even know in in, right. the, in the academic world so well Dan I appreciate you making time and spending some extra time with me um on the podcast folks the book is the rise and fall of dispensationalism how the evangelical battle over the end time shaped a nation is the book out now it is it's been out for about a month and a half now yeah Perfect. I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes. Pick it up. It is a, is it on audiobook by any chance? It is not on audiobook. Just uh, just print right now. Well, I will pray for that to happen so people can listen <laughs> to your voice. So just you know, nonchalantly talk through such a big, complicated topic. Dan, I got to say, I really appreciate you spending probably countless hours of research and reading just so you can tell someone like me and this audience all the goodies. I mean, you did all the work and we're benefiting from your work. So thank you so much for, for that and for writing it and for the work that you do. Keep in touch. I'd love to talk to you again. And I'm sure we will as we see Christian nationalism continue to develop. So thanks for making time. It's been a pleasure. Good to be with you.